Chapter 8 of Dope. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Mark Friend. Dope by Sax Romer. Chapter 8. Carrie Consults the Oracle. The clock of Brixton Town Hall was striking the hour of 1 a.m. as Chief Inspector Carey inserted his key in the lock of the door of his house in Spencer Road. A light was burning in the hallway, and from the little dining room on the left the reflection of a cheerful fire danced upon the white paint of a half-open door. Carey deposited his hat, cane, and overall upon the rack, and moving very quietly entered the room and turned on the light. A modestly furnished and scrupulously neat apartment was revealed. On the sheepskin rug before the fire a Manx cat was dozing beside a pair of carpet slippers. On the table some kind of cold repast was laid, the viands concealed under china covers. At a large bottle of Guinness Extra Stout, Carey looked with particular appreciation. He heaved a long sigh of contentment and opened the bottle of stout, having poured out a glass of the black and foaming liquid and satisfied an evidently urgent thirst he explored beneath the covers and presently was seated before a spread of ham and tongue tomatoes and bread and butter a door opened somewhere upstairs and is that your Sildan? inquired a deep but musical female voice sure it is replied carrie and no one who had heard the high official tones of the imperious chief inspector would have supposed that they could be so softened and modulated you should have been asleep hours ago, Mary. Have ye to go out again? I have. Bad luck. But don't trouble to come down. I've all I want and more. If tis a new case, I'll come down. It's the devil's own case, but you'll get your death of cold. Sounds of movement in the room above followed, and presently footsteps on the stairs. Mrs. Carey, enveloped in a woolen dressing gown, which obviously belonged to the inspector, came into the room. Upon her, Carrie directed a look from which all fierceness had been effaced, and which expressed only an undying admiration. And indeed, Mary Carey was in many respects a remarkable character. Half an inch taller than Carrie, she fully merited the compliment designed by the trite apophthegm, quote, a fine woman, close quote. Large-boned but shapely, as she came in with her long dark hair neatly plaited, it seemed to her husband, who had remained her lover, that he saw before him the rosy-cheeked lass whom ten years before he had met and claimed on the chilly shores of Loch Broom. By all her neighbors, Mrs. Carey was looked upon as a proud, reserved person, who had held herself much aloof since her husband had become chief inspector, and the reputation enjoyed by Red Carey was that of an aggressive and uncompanionable man. Now here was a lover's meeting, not lacking the shy, downward glance of dark eyes as steel-blue eyes flashed frank admiration. Carrie, who quarreled with everybody except the assistant commissioner, had only found one cause of quarrel with Mary. He was a devout Roman Catholic, and for five years he had clung with the bulldog tenacity which was his to the belief that he could convert his wife to the faith of Rome. She remained true to the Scottish Free Church, in which precepts she had been reared, and at the end of the five years Carrie gave it up and admired her all the more for her Caledonian strength of mind. Many and heated were the debates he had held with worthy Father O'Callaghan respecting the validity of a marriage not solemnized by a priest, but of late years he had grown reconciled to the parting of the ways on Sunday morning, and as the early mass was over before the Scottish service, he was regularly to be seen outside a certain Presbyterian chapel waiting for his heretical spouse. He pulled her down to his knee and kissed her. "'It's twelve hours since I saw you,' he said. 
She rested her arm on the back of the saddleback chair and her dark head close beside Carrie's fiery red one. My Kennedy had a new case on, she said, when it grew so late. How long can ye stay? An hour, no more. There's a lot to do before the papers come out in the morning. By breakfast time, all England, including the murderer, will know I'm in charge of the case. I wish I could muzzle the press. Tis a murder, then. The Lord give us grace. Ye'd be wishing to tell me? Yes, I'm stumped. You've time for a rest and a smoke. Put your slippers on. I've no time for that, Mary. She stood up and took the slippers from the hearth. Put your slippers on, she repeated firmly. Carrie stooped without another word and began to unlace his brogues. Meanwhile, from a side table, his wife brought a silver tobacco box and a stumpy Irish clay. The slippers substituted for his shoes, Carrie lovingly filled the cracked and blackened bowl with strong Irish twist, which he first teased carefully in his palm. The bowl rested almost under his nostrils when he put the pipe in his mouth, and how he contrived to light it without burning his mustache was not readily apparent. He succeeded, however, and soon was puffing clouds of pungent smoke into the air with the utmost contentment. Now, said his wife, seating herself upon the arm of the chair, tell me then. Thereupon began a procedure identical to that which had characterized the outset of every successful case of the chief inspector. He rapidly outlined the complexities of the affair in Old Bond Street, and Mary Carey surveyed the problem with a curious and almost fey detachment of mind, which enabled her to see light where all was darkness to the man on the spot. With the clarity of a trained observer, Carey described the apartments of Cosma, the exact place where the murdered man had been found, and the construction of the rooms. He gave the essential points from the evidence of the several witnesses, quoting the exact times at which various episodes had taken place. Mary Carey, looking straightly before her with unseeing eyes, listened in silence until he ceased speaking. Then, There are really but two rooms, she said in a faraway voice. But the second of these partitioned into three parts? That's it. A door free the landing opens upon the first room. A door free a passage opens upon the second. Where does yon passage lead? From the main stair along beside Cosmo's rooms to a small back stair. This back stair goes from top to bottom of the building, from the end of the same hallway as the main stair. There's no either way out but the front door? No. Then if the evidence of the spinker man is above suspicion, Mrs. Irvin and this Cosma were still on the premises when ye arrived. Exactly. I gathered that much at Vine Street before I went on to Bond Street. The whole block was surrounded five minutes after my arrival, and still is. What other offices are in this passage? None. It's a blank wall on the left, and the one door on the right, the one opening into Cosma's office. There are other premises on the same floor, but they are across the landing. What premises? A solicitor and a commission agent. The floor below? It's all occupied by a Medista, Renan. The top floor? Cubanus Cigarette Company, a servants and an electrician. Nay more? No more. Where does yon back stair open on the top meist floor? In a corridor similar to that alongside Cosmas. It has two windows, on the right overlooking a narrow roof and the top of the arcade, and on the left is the Cubanus Cigarette Company. The other officers are across the landing. Mary Carey stared into space a while. Cosma and Mrs. Irwin could have come down the first floor or gin up to the third floor unseen by the spintker man, she said dreamily. But they couldn't have reached the street, my dear, cried Carrie. No, they couldn't have gained the street. She became silent again, her husband watching her expectantly. Then, 
If Paris Sir Lucien Payne was killed at a quarter after seven, the time his watch was broken, the native siren did not kill him. Fry the spinker's evidence a black man went all before then, she said. Mrs. Irvin? Carey shook his head. From all accounts, a slip of a woman, he replied. It was a strong hand that struck the blow. Cosma? Probably. Mr. Quentin Gray came back with a cab and went upstairs, free the spinker's evidence, at about a quarter after seven, and came doon five minutes later, sire pale and fretful. Carey surrounded himself and the speaker with wreaths of stifling smoke. We have only the bare word of Mr. Gray that he didn't go in again, Mary, but I believe him. He's a hot-headed fool, but square. Then twas young Cosma, announced Mrs. Carey. Who is Cosma? Her husband laughed shortly. That's the point at which I got stumped, he replied. We've heard of him at the yard, of course. We know that under the cloak of a dealer in eastern perfumes, he carried on a fortune-telling business. He managed to avoid prosecution, though. It took me over an hour tonight to explore the thought-reading mechanism. It's a sort of masculine's mysteries, work from the inside room. But who Cosma is or what's his nationality, I know no more than the man in the moon. Perfume? queried the faraway voice. Yes, Mary. The first room is a sort of miniature scent bazaar. There are funny little imitation antique flasks of Cosma's preparations, creams, perfumes, and incense. Also small square wooden boxes of a kind of Turkish delight, and a stock of Egyptian mummy heads, statuettes, and the like, which may be genuine for all I know. Nigh books or letters? Not a thing, except his own advertisements, a telephone directory, and so on. The inside office bureau? Empty as Mother Hubbard's cupboard. The place was ransacked by the same folk that emptied the dead man's pockets as to leave no clue, pronounced the sibyl-like voice. Mr. Gray said he had chocolates with him. Where did he leave them? Mary, you're a wonder, exclaimed the admiring Carrie. The box was lying on the divan in the first room where he said he had left it on going out for a cab. Does not all the evidence show if Mrs. Irvin had been at Cosmos before? Yes, she went there fairly regularly to buy perfume. Not for the fortune-telling. No, according to Mr. Gray, to buy perfume. Had Mr. Gray been with her before? No, Sir Lucian Pine seems to have been her pretty constant companion. Do you suspect she was his lady-love? I believe Mr. Gray suspects something of the kind. And Mr. Gray? He's not such an old friend as Sir Lucian was, but I fancy, nevertheless, it was Mr. Gray that her husband doubted. Do you suspect the poor soul had cause, then? No, replied Carrie promptly. I don't. The boy is mad about her, but I fancy she just liked his company. He's the heir of Lord Rexborough, and Mrs. Irvin used to be a stage beauty. It's the usual state of affairs, and more often than not means nothing. I didn't kin such folk, declared Mary Carey. They almost deserve all they get. They are bound to come to a good end. Where did you say Sir Lucien lived? Albemarle Street, just round the corner. You told me that he only kept twa servants, a cook, horsekeeper, who lived a, on a man, a foreigner, a kind of half-baked dago, named Juan Marino, a citizen of the United States, according to his own account. You didn't like Juan Marino. He's a hateful swine, flashed Carey with a sudden venom. I'm watching Marino very closely. Combs is at work upon Sir Lucian's papers. His life was a bit of a mystery. He seems to have had no relations living, and I can't find that he even employed a solicitor. You'll be searching for the Egyptian? The servant? Yes, we'll have him by the morning, and then we shall know who Cosma is. Meanwhile, in which of the offices is Cosma hiding? 
Mary Carey was silent for so long that her husband repeated the question. In which of the offices is Cosma hiding? In none, she said dreamily. Ye surrounded the buildings too late, akin. Huh? cried Carey, turning his head excitedly. But the man bristly was at the door all night. It doesn't matter. They escaped. Carey scratched his close-cropped head in angry perplexity. You're always right, Mary, he said. But hang me if... Never mind. When we get the servant, we'll soon get Cosma. Aye, murmured his wife. If you had not got Cosma, then ow. But Mary, this isn't helping me. It's mystifying me deeper than ever. It's not clear, no, Don. But for sure, behind this mystery of the death of Sir Lucian, there's a darker mystery still. Sire dark. Tis the biggest case you ever had. Dinna look for Cosma. Look to find why the woman went to him and try to find the meaning of the small window behind the big chair. Yes, she seemed to be staring at some distant visible object. Watch the man Marino. But Mrs. Irvin is in God's good keeping. You don't think she's dead? She is worse than dead. Her sins have found her out. The frayed light suddenly left her eyes, and they became filled with tears. She turned impulsively to her husband. Oh, Dan, you must find her. You must find her. Poor weak heart. Dinny, you can how she is suffering. My dear, he said, putting his arms around her. What is it? What is it? She brushed the tears from her eyes and tried to smile. Tis something like the second sight done, she answered simply. And it's escaped me again. Almost had the clue to it, and oh, there's some horrible wickedness in it, and cruelty and shame. The clock on the mantel shelf began to peal. Carrie was watching his wife's rosy face with a mixture of loving admiration and wonder. She looked so very bonny and placid and capable that he was puzzled anew at the strange gift which she seemingly inherited from her mother, who had been equally shrewd, equally comely, and similarly endowed. God bless us all, he said, kissed her heartily, and stood up. Back to bed you go, my dear. I must be off. There's Mr. Irvin to see in the morning, too. A few minutes later, he was swinging through the deserted streets, his mind wholly occupied with lover-like reflections to the exclusion of those professional matters which properly should have been engaging his attention. As he passed the end of a narrow court near the railway station, the gleam of his silver-mounted malacca attracted the attention of a couple of loafers who were leaning one on other side of an iron pillar in the shadow of the unsavory alley. Not another pedestrian was in sight, and only the remote night sounds of London broke the silence. Twenty paces beyond, the footfall silently closed in upon their prey. The taller of the pair reached him first, only to receive a backhanded blow full in the face which sent him reeling a couple yards. Round leapt the assaulted man to face his second assailant. If you two smarts really want handling, he rapped ferociously, say the word and I'll bash you flat. As he turned, the light of a neighboring lamp shone down upon the savage face, and a smothered yell came from the shorter ruffian. Blimey, Bill! It's Red Carey! Whereupon, as men pursued by devils, the pair made off like the wind. Carey glared after the retreating figures for a moment, and a grin of fierce satisfaction revealed his gleaming teeth. He turned again and swung on his way toward the main road. The incident had done him good. It had banished domestic matters from his mind, and he was become again the highly trained champion of justice, standing an unseen buckler between society and the criminal. End of chapter 8